If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 546. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that, but it's a great website. I've got near 20 classes available for purchase. And of course, if you're on my email list, you know I've got discounts. If you're listening to this podcast in November, I've got Black Friday running already. So if you want great deals on McClanahan Academy courses, you got to go Give me that email list. Go to brianmcclanahan.com. Give me that email list, and then you can get those good deals. But this is how you keep the show free of charge. You buy a class or 12 at McClanahan Academy. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Click on the support tab. Get my uh, my autograph on a book. If you just get a book plate with that, purchase one of my books. I've got several of those available for purchase. They make great gifts. All this, of course, is leading into the holiday season McClanahan Academy is never out of stock, so if you want a good gift and you've got a Brian McClanahan fan in your family, or maybe it's you and you want something awesome, treat yourself to a McClanahan Academy course. If you like the podcast, you're going to like the the, uh, the classes without without question. And as always, share the podcast around on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally, and this is a listener-generated episode, so if you want to hear something, let me know. This one is certainly that. And it has to do with the Supreme Court oral arguments and a new gun rights case. Now, uh, I'm going to read an article from Salon Magazine, and it's written by a, an American historian named Saul Cornell. Now, Saul Cornell is a regulator. He certainly believes in firearms regulation. He has written a number of books and articles and scholarly essays on the Second Amendment. He is on the left, essentially. Um, but And, and I'm, and I'm going to go through this, and I'll say this from the beginning. And I know a lot of people that are interested in this issue get upset when I say this, but the states can regulate firearms as long as it doesn't violate their own constitutions. The states can regulate firearms. And see where Cornell and everyone else is missing the point in all of this is that What's happening now with the Supreme Court, they shouldn't be taking this case, right? This is all a result of incorporation, which was never the design of the 14th Amendment to begin with. And we know that because it was said when the amendment was going through the debate process in the Congress, we know that the 14th Amendment didn't incorporate anything. What Heck, we even know that it It didn't even lead to integrated schools because after the 14th Amendment was passed, we still had segregated schools in in the District of Columbia. So we know the 14th Amendment has been taken way out of context 
Essentially, all they wanted to do was ensure that former slaves could own property and sue in court. I mean, these are the things that they wanted to ensure that could happen, right? So it didn't mean that they were gonna, we were going to take the Bill of Rights and apply it to the states or that the federal government would have jurisdiction over all these things. That was never the design of the 14th Amendment. I think Raoul Berger has pretty much hammered the lid shut on the argument that somehow the 14th Amendment incorporated the Bill of Rights. Now, we've got Eric Foner running around saying it did. I mean, his new book essentially takes that position that we've had incorporation. And we know that when Bingham was arguing for the amendment, he made a point. And this is interesting because he says in his speech, look, uh, I don't understand this Bill of Rights thing. The Bill of Rights already applies to the states because of the supremacy clause. Now, this is interesting because a commenter said this the other day on my YouTube channel. I didn't respond back to it because it's I, I could go tit for tat on these things all the time. But you see, yeah, think about it. He said, think about it. The uh, the it already it already applies because of the supremacy clause. Well, that would be news to the entire founding generation, including John Marshall, who in Barrenby, Baltimore, said the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. Right? I mean, so from the beginning, we know that the Bill of Rights only applied to the general government. That was it. The states. This is why state constitutions had their own Bill of Rights because it didn't apply. We also know that one of the most important arguments for ratification of the Constitution was that we don't need a Bill of Rights because the states already have them. A Bill of Rights would be redundant because basically what you're doing there is saying if we're going to put a Bill of Rights in this document, that means we have a, a document that has implied powers. Well, we've argued for months now. It doesn't have implied powers. But by saying we need a Bill of Rights, you're arguing that it has implied powers. I mean, this is, this is the interesting part of all of this. So what we're doing here, while this, the Supreme Court taking up a, a case that is a, simply a state issue is a distortion of what should be happening here. Now, we know that because of incorporation, we've seen all kinds of things, the federal government, the, the federal courts, take up issues they should never have any business doing. And so on the right, they're saying, well, if they're going to do it for this, we're going to do it for us. And essentially, that's what Cornell says at the end of this piece. But he's saying, don't call it originalism. And I agree with him there. This is not originalism. This is something else. This is the right taking a non-originalist position to this particular issue. I agree with him. Because you see, what I would say about this is that uh, the Second Amendment does prohibit the federal government, and this is where I would disagree with Cornell, prohibits the federal government from regulating firearms. It prohibits the federal government from doing it, but not the state governments. I would say that all federal gun control is unconstitutional, and I would say that nobody really thought otherwise, because if you look until 1930, you could buy howitzers, in a magazine, they could ship it to your house. All military surplus, everything the government had and it didn't need anymore was sold to private dealers, and they sold the stuff everywhere. Uh, there was a, somebody put on uh, social media one of these large military surplus stores in New York City, New York City, and this guy sold stuff to states. I'm talking not just states in the United States, but foreign powers. They were selling military surplus, firearms, swords, uniforms, Anything you could think of, they were selling it to foreign governments from New York City from a private business. 
That all was shut down in 1930 or so with federal firearms regulation. Now, that regulation in 1930 was unconstitutional. The federal government cannot regulate firearms. The states can. The states could have shut that guy down. The states could have shut any of this down. But we know they didn't. We know that, for example, the Thompson machine gun was sold, uh, marketed to ranchers. Get rid of your of your coyote problem with a Thompson machine gun. Go on out and take out your coyotes, right, with your 45 caliber fully automatic Thompson machine gun. Uh, I mean, these things happen. And that, of course, was post-World War I. The Thompson machine gun was invented in World War I. So this is post-World War I. You could go out and get your Thompson. And up until 19... I mean, there's no regulation on this. Now, the states could have. You could have had any of these western states regulate those things. And we have seen throughout American history, I agree with Saul Cornell, that there have been cases where states have regulated firearms, where cities have regulated firearms, and they could do it. And there was no problem with it because it wasn't a federal issue. It was a local issue. This has always been a local issue. Do I think it's a good policy? That's a whole other question. I don't. But the states can do it in the states where they want to do it. You see, this is where we get into this idea of federalism, right? I mean, hey, we have this beautiful federal union where California can be California and Alabama can be in Alabama and Massachusetts can be Massachusetts, and we can live and let live. That's what the federal system was all about. But when you start doing what the Supreme Court is doing here with the Second Amendment or the First Amendment or the Fifth Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or the Eighth Amendment, when they're doing what they're doing with those amendments and forcing incorporation, well, that creates conflict. It, it makes a situation where people are angry because you're having one-size-fits-all, top-down government for peoples and cultures, political cultures that don't necessarily line up. I'm fine with Massachusetts being Massachusetts. Just don't govern me and my state. Same thing with California. I'm fine with California being California. If that's what you want, you get you get California. Move there. Get all the California you want. And I I'm, I know an individual. He loves California. Doesn't he? It looks. He says that he's going to have tyranny anywhere. I just want my tyranny warm. Right. So loves California. That's great. He can have all the California he wants. I just don't want it here where I live. So that's okay. That's what this is all about, really, at the end of the day. It's accepting that there is differences. There's political cultures. Even here in these 50 states, there are different political cultures. Live and let live. That's what federalism, the whole point of federalism is built on that. As long as you have a Republican form of government, the states can do whatever they want, as long as it doesn't violate the constitutions of those states. Somebody else pointed this out. Uh, when I said something about this, when it came down to mandates and other things, I said, look, the states can do whatever they want as long as they don't violate their own constitutions. That's always the caveat. You have to be a guard against states even doing these things, and you have to take them to task in the state itself. Take them to state court. It's not a federal issue. They violate the state constitution. That's a state issue. This is the whole point of Cohen's v. Virginia, right? I mean, at some point... The states tried to stand up to the general government, and John Marshall smacked them down. On, I mean, th that was going completely against original understanding, but that the states could be the states. And I get into all those cases like that in my American Constitutions class at McClanahan Academy. 
So you want to take that class. I also have the Originalist Papers class, which gets into all of these things, right? So how, how the Constitution was sold. So let me get into the Sal, uh, Sal Cornell piece. He says, last week the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. v. Bruin, the case that will decide the future of concealed carry in the United States. Following those arguments, it has become crystal clear that the conservative wing of the Supreme Court is once again determined to apply originalism in a selective fashion to achieve its preferred political outcomes. The court appears to be perfectly happy to trot out originalist rhetoric when it serves their interests and abandon it entirely when the historical record does not support their political goals. Now, what side doesn't do this? The left does it, the right. I mean, this is, this is the problem with nationalism. See, this is why he, he's missing the entire problem here in that it's not about regulation. It's simply about the powers of the federal government vis-a-vis the states. This is more of an issue of federalism than anything else. And he gets into where it's regulation. This is the problem. Over the past decade, multiple scholars writing on both sides of the Atlantic have uncovered a voluminous historical record of gun regulation, largely invisible to the court that decided the landmark decision on gun rights, District of Columbia v. Heller, because the sources were not that e- then easily available to legal research- researchers. That historical record not only demonstrates that arms have been closely regulated when carried in dense and populous areas for more than 700 years, it showed that New York's own law was part of a constitutional transformation in gun regulation during the era of the 14th Amendment that swept across the nation. Having cast their lot with history in Heller, the court's purported originalists now wish to cast aside that history to further the cause of gun rights. The court's originalists are on the verge of embracing a radical living constitutional vision of the Second Amendment that would have made the activist judges of the Warren Court era blanch. So uh, here's the thing. I, I, I don't know if he meant blush there, but here's the thing. He's missing the entire point. I would say that they shouldn't even take up this case because New York is New York, and if New York wants to regulate firearms, they can do that. This is not really a federal issue. At all. You see, that's the problem. So what he's complaining about is that the Supreme, the conservatives on the Supreme Court, quote-unquote, are doing what the left has done for decades. He just doesn't like the issue. So he's saying, well, you're being hypocritical. Well, okay. This is true. They, they, they are being hypocritical. So what? I mean, at this point, if you're going to accept incorporation, which I would which I would guess that Cornell would accept it for a lot of things, then you got to accept it here too. You got to accept it. Now, I think he's com- confusing in many cases as well originalism with textualism. You know, how did it, what do they mean by regulation when uh, when that a well-regulated militia when that amendment was written? What do they mean by that? There is there's a textualism and then there's originalism. Originalism has to do with how the Constitution was argued when it was ratified. And, of course, what were the powers of the government there? Now, we know that in the Second Amendment, the reason the Second Amendment was even added was because there was a fear that if the government, the general government, could arm the militia, which they can, they could also disarm the militia. They could take weapons away from individuals. So this is why this is the birth of the Second Amendment. It's a corresponding negative power on the power of arming. Because if they can arm, they can theoretically disarm. Now, 
The proponents of the document, remember, said, well, if it doesn't say we can do it, we can't do it. So they had no power to disarm. They had the power to arm, but not to disarm. So that was the argument. Well, the Second Amendment says you can't disarm. You can arm the militia, but you can't disarm the militia. So disarming the militia would be regulation, confiscation, whatever. That, that's, that's why I say that any federal firearms regulations are unconstitutional. The states can do it all day. The states could tell you you can't own a tank, you can't own a nuclear warhead, you can't own an F-15, you can't own a machine gun, whatever it is. The states could do this all day, but not the general government. And so that allows for states to be states. Now, you could say that in that state you have state amendments. So what does the state amendment say on this particular issue? That's a big question. He continues, multiple justices in the oral argument in Bruin confess their discomfort with treating the Second Amendment differently than the way modern courts treat other rights. Of course, anyone who takes the time to study our legal history realizes that we do not now and never have treated all rights the same. Requiring a permit to march or to undertake a building project on your own property is not tyranny. All rights, including inalienable rights, a legal term that itself derives from English property law, have always been subject to regulation. Just because you owned a tannery did not mean you got to dump lye into the stream a mile from your neighbor. These same principles always applied to guns. Okay, this is what I said. that if it, you, We can talk about regulation at the state level, but not at the federal level. It's illegal. Okay, but this is a state issue, so I actually agree with them here that the Supreme Court shouldn't even take this up. Given that Heller tied the Second Amendment to individual self-defense, one would think that a proper understanding of that complex history ought to have informed the court's oral arguments, but sadly it did not. Under English common law, the use of deadly force was permitted in the home, but strictly limited outside of the home. So from its very inception, the right of self-defense was related to geography and social space in a unique way. Outside of the home, one had a duty to retreat, not to stand your ground under common law. In short, the scope of the right was fundamentally shaped by where the right was exercised. The strength of the right diminished as one moved further away from the home and moved into more populous areas. Thus, the state of Northampton in 1328, a statue of Northampton, I'm sorry, in 1328, a law that was extensively discussed in the Bruin Oracle argument, singled out sensitive places such as courts and populous areas, such as fairs and markets, as locations that one could not travel armed unless one was acting to preserve the peace. The conservative justices seem to confuse the two concepts, subsuming populous areas into sensitive ones. A federal courthouse is a sensitive place. Grand Central Station is a populous one. So look, they're going back to this issue of 1320. Again, the the federal court system shouldn't even be deciding this. It should be being argued in New York State Court, not in federal court. That's the problem with incorporation. He's missing the elephant in the room. It should just be, this is open and closed. There's no way that the federal government has jurisdiction in this case. By 14th Amendment incorporation. See, the left, if you want to live by incorporation, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of incorporation. Same thing with those on the right that say, well, we got to incorporate Second Amendment. Well, what happens when other issues, namely culture war issues, are introduced? And you have to live with those too. See, this is why incorporation is a bad idea. 
Justice Amy Coney Barrett's musings that Times Square on New Year's, Eve, New Year's Eve might be an appropriate place to regulate guns is instructive in this regard. At the time that the Second Amendment was adopted, the entire population of Manhattan was less than a third of the number of individuals found in Times Square on any given day of the year other than New Year's Eve. As it turns out, the use of guns on New Year's and other holidays was prohibited in early New York because it posed a threat to innocent bystanders. In the case of guns, liberty is a zero-sum game. Increasing gun owners' rights will inevitably construct, constrict the rights of others, a fact that the court's originalist judges seem happy to ignore. Now, again, New York regulated firearms. Why? Because they could. It's just like after the First Amendment was passed. Guess what happened? You had three states in New England that had state-established churches. So if they thought that amendment applied to the states, they would have not had state-established churches. They wouldn't even have agreed to ratify it. But they knew it didn't apply to them. It applied only to the central government. That's it. The statute of Northampton and its American analogs were not just regulations of sensitive places or times. These types of laws sought to demilitarize places of commerce and civic life because the presence of arms undermined civil society, the peace and freedom itself. As the insurrection on January 6th of 2021 made clear, limiting the ability to travel armed in public enhances the liberty of all Americans, even if it may temporarily diminish the liberty of some gun owners. The court's conservative justices' concern about self-defense has blinded them to the rights of ordinary Americans to enjoy the peace and participate in public life. The generations that wrote the Second Amendment and the 14th did not suffer from the same type of constitutional myopia. The so-called originalists now on the court and their ever-expanding vision of the Second Amendment threatens to swallow what remains of the First Amendment. Again, he's operating from a nationalist incorporationist position. It's entirely wrong. It's entirely wrong. If he wants to argue, look, I mean, he's making an argument for regulation. That's fine, okay? But this isn't a Second Amendment issue. This is a state issue. This is actually a Tenth Amendment issue, not a Second Amendment issue. It's a Tenth Amendment issue. During Reconstruction, the era of the 14th Amendment, states and localities drew up on this ancient tradition of protecting the public sphere by passing a variety of laws limiting where guns were allowed. Oklahoma's law is illuminating in this respect. Quote, It shall be unlawful for any person except a peace officer to carry into any church or religious assembly, any schoolroom or other place where persons are assembled for public worship, for amusement or for education or scientific purposes, or into any circus, show or public exhibition of any kind, or to any ballroom, or in any party, or social gathering, or to any election, or to any place where intoxicating liquors are, are sold, or to any political convention, or to any other public assembly, any of the weapons designated in sections 1 and 2 of this article. Now, again, this is an Oklahoma law dealing with Oklahoma. It doesn't say you can't do this in New York. It just says you can't do it here in Oklahoma. Just says you can't do in Oklahoma. Now, what's interesting about that, of course, is Oklahoma was a... I don't know when, when this law was written, but we didn't have a state of Oklahoma yet. So was this a federal law? So if this is a federal law, okay, now that law will then be unconstitutional. So is it a federal or a state law that he's talking about here? New York's permit law was modeled on laws enacted during Reconstruction. Under any serious originalist na analysis, this fact alone would render the, them presumptively lawful under the Heller-McDonald history, text, tradition, mode of analysis. So, look, they're looking at text. It's not originalism. I'm talking about textualism here. See, there's two different things. I think he's a little confused about this. 
Dozens of similar laws were passed in towns and cities across America. At the time they were passed, these laws were all understood to be consistent with the Second Amendment. No, 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 no. They were consistent with the state constitutions and the original understanding of where the Bill of Rights applied. This is the problem. Because the 14th Amendment didn't incorporate the Bill of Rights. See, I, I think that Cornell is confused. He's really confused about what all this means. He's held up as this great legal scholar of the early American Republic. And he doesn't really even understand originalism. He doesn't really even understand what all this means. Moreover, recent historical research has demonstrated these laws were vigorously enforced and applied in a racially neutral manner until the era of Jim Crow, when Southern racists used them to dismantle Reconstruction, often at the barrel of a gun. The notion that these laws are now suddenly unconstitutional because today's justices find that they are hard to reconcile with their modern ideas about rights makes a mockery of originalism. It is not vindicated. This is little more than right-wing constitutionalism for guns. Right-wing living constitutional. No, no, no. Okay, this is incorporationism. Right? I mean, I agree with them. I mean, they're, they're looking at this in the wrong way. This is not a federal issue. These states could do what they wanted. He wraps up the oral arguments in Bruin demonstrates that the conservative wing of the court is not sincerely interested in history, text, and tradition if the evidence cuts against them. Again, he's talking about textualism, not originalism here. He confuses the terms. What they are intent on doing is vindicating gun rights, rewarding the base of the Republican Party, and recasting the scope of the Second Amendment so that it resembles other modern rights transformed by the Warren Court and left-leaning champions of a living Constitution. In his opening remarks, Paul Clement correctly noted that the current scope of Second Amendment rights does not match the robustness of modern First Amendment rights or criminal procedure rights. But the operative word here is modern. The original understanding of the First Amendment and criminal, criminal procedure rights, both in the founding era and the period of Reconstruction, were anemic by contemporary standards. There is nothing inherently wrong with Republicans and their Federalist Society groomed justices supersizing the Second Amendment. The left got their supersized rights in the 1960s, so now it is the rights turn. The one thing such an approach is not consistent with is the rights claim that originalism is principled, neutral, and intellectually rigorous. Now, again, he's confusing originalism with textualism, so... Let's get that out of the way, too. But the real issue here is this is a Tenth Amendment, not a Second Amendment issue. He confuses the things. This is a Tenth Amendment, not a Second Amendment issue. And I think that's where we need to start making clear the language is important. The language is important. So, uh, I, I think that the, the listener asked for my thoughts on this article, and I think that he's spot on on some of these things, right? I mean, the, the right is being inconsistent. If they really don't believe in incorporation, then don't push incorporation. But they do believe in incorporation. It's not for the incorporation things they want. It's the exact same thing the left does. He is, Sal Cornell, I would probably, fair to, to surmise, would be an incorporationist. He just doesn't like it when incorporation is pushed against things he doesn't like. I mean, this is the important thing about this. So, I would say, again, regulation, as long as it doesn't violate the state constitution, is completely legal. It's been used throughout. I think Cornell is right here. They've used it, right? States and cities have regulated firearms. That's something that's happened. But once you push incorporation, once you say, well, uh, we've got an issue now. The Second Amendment goes into this. And so now he's saying, well, even with incorporation, you can't regulate. Because regulation's always been there. What does regulated mean? So he buys incorporation, but he doesn't buy it for what he wants. He's confused about this. He's looking at textualism, not originalism. Originalism is, look, we have a federal compact. 
The states can do what they want as long as it doesn't violate the state constitutions or Article 1, Section 10. They can do anything they want. Okay, that's what we have. Right? So the federal government cannot get involved in these things. That's originalism. We have a federal republic, a confederal republic, as Alexander Hamilton even called it. He called it a confederation in the Federalist Essays. That's the issue here. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow. See you then.